So, um, to begin with, uh, in Isaiah chapter 29, right in verse 1, it starts out by saying, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around, yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, it shall be to me as Ariel. I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound. I will raise siege work against you. You shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech, speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground. And your speech shall whisper out of the dust. So this is a sort of a unique passage and a unique statement in all of the scripture. There's a lot of debate over uh, this term, this name, Ariel. Uh, the direct meaning uh, is Lion of God, which may actually have its application in this. There is some that say the name Ariel is so close in its uh, original language to Jerusalem that they insist that this actually should have been translated Jerusalem. So, you know, woe to Jerusalem, to Ariel. Um, there's a lot of speculation around that. I think that the scholars that I trust the most in this, you know, not that I'm any student of Hebrew or Greek language, but, you know, their understanding is the most comfortable for me as far as not dismissing anything. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, the lion of the tribe of Judah and, you know, this, this recognition and understanding, even in the Old Testament, of the coming Messiah and, you know, the, their identification as a nation with the lion and, you know, the Lord being a lion himself described throughout the scripture. Even though the language is very close, um, there are the scholars that point out that the similarities um, may just sort of be a poetic sense of things. That um, it in fact means, just like it says in verse 1, uh, the city where David dwelt. So it isn't so much that, like, it's a mistranslation, it should have been rendered Jerusalem, as it is that... You know, Isaiah is telling us that he's speaking of Jerusalem, but he's giving us this sense that the people are thinking of the lion as their mascot. So, you know, most of us have, you know, been to schools where, you know, there was some kind of, you know, formidable adversary in our mascot you know it's rare that you you find a school that you know chose the puppies to be their school mascot it's usually the lions or the bears or the eagles you know that's something that's you know got some strength to it some ability to fight in it and that more seems what isaiah is saying he's he's telling us i'm talking about jerusalem you know the city where david dwelt but you've chosen to identify with the lion, you know, the city 
of the lion or the lion of God. And uh, there's a rebuke that's coming, you know, in this same first four verses. God is saying to them, I'm going to war with you. You've chosen to make the lion your mascot. You've chosen to identify yourself with a lion. Well, now you as the lion are going to have to contend with me, God. I'm going to build an encampment around you. That's a term of war. I'm going to build a, a siege work against you, a, a mound that I would be able to you know, put my weaponry on top of and just rain down all of my attack upon you. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel, particularly Jerusalem, for the fact that they have rebelled against God. Now, now in it, um, you know, if you look a little later in the chapter, you might want to underline that statement in verse 8, you know, who fight against Mount Zion. So that it's a further indication that Ariel, as it says in verse 1, is the city where dwelt, uh, David dwelt, and then verse 8, you know, the Mount of Zion. That's a clear indication of Jerusalem itself. Back to verses 1 through 4, you know, he's saying, you know, you have chosen to be in opposition to me by, you know, just carrying on year after year in your feasts. You know, you're kind of like relying on your heritage, relying on your holidays, relying on your traditions, thinking that that equals having a relationship with God. That equals salvation in the mind of the people. And the Lord is saying, Nothing can be farther from the truth. You know, keep your celebrations year after year. You know, honor your heritage. Follow your religious traditions. I'm going to war with you. That's a, that's a pretty serious, you know, threat from God. That, that they as a people have come to the place where they're now going to be, you know, distressed, as he said. Yet I will distress Ariel, the encampment against you and all around you, you shall be brought down. You're high and lofty right now. I'm going to bring you so low that you know he's not encouraging the people to go seek mediums that would communicate with the dead, but he's saying to them in a, a thinly veiled threat, you're going to be dead. You know, your voice. the only way your voice is going to be heard is if someone goes and inquires of a medium. You're going to be down to the dust. You're going to be buried in the dust. That's a very serious threat when it comes from your God. You know, when, when you are in a place where you are celebrating who he is and simultaneously his threat of punishment and, quite frankly, death hangs over your head. It, it, there, there are many people, many individuals throughout history where if if they threatened you, you know, it would fill us with terror. You know, certain world leaders. And, uh, you know, I, I think <laughs> um, Salman Rushdie, wasn't it, that wrote, drew that cartoon so many years ago of Mohammed and his turban was shaped like, you know, a burning time bomb and Islam lost its mind. And Salman Rushdie's been in hiding ever since then. There have been like four very serious attempts on his life. You know, they've blown his car up in his front yard. He's been in hiding every since. 
That's, that's a very serious enemy to offend. I, I think about you know the people who you know professional boxers who were so accomplished in their careers, and then the day came where they're going to get in the ring with Mike Tyson. You can just see the fear in their eyes. You know they knew that you know every fight he's been in you know lasted like you know the longest was like 54 seconds. There are certain threats that come. There are certain adversaries that fill your heart with fear. Look, when God tells you you've made yourself an enemy to him and he's preparing to go to war with you, that's when it's time to go to the negotiation table and do everything you can to make that relationship right again. You know, it's not time to just cower in fear. Oh, my Lord, we've crossed the boundaries. Now he's going to crush us. This is the same merciful God that is continuously looking to extend his forgiveness all throughout history. When, when you find yourself in that place where, ah, I've crossed the line. God has, not, God has now declared himself my enemy for all of my behavior and all of my suspicions and my fears for my conduct and the things that I've been doing and living in. Now I know. You know, the prophet has spoken and declared to me that I've made myself an enemy of God. That's, that's when it's time to just overhaul your whole program. Whatever it is we've engaged ourselves in, just bow your heart and your face before the Lord and ask for his reconciliation. Watch what happens here, beginning in verse 5. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like find us. So he goes right from this image of you're going to be brought from your heights down to your lowest points into the dust. Since we're talking about dust, your enemies are going to become like fine dust. They're going to multiply to the point where they just permeate everything. So you're moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. That idea of chaff passing away um, <clears throat> is it, you know, it burns up super rapidly. It's just, you know, it's straw and hay, you know, wheat. Uh, if you were to bundle that up and throw it into a fire, that would burn quickly enough. All of that fine husk of the wheat that has been beaten off, the, uh, you know, uh, stalk of the plant has shed that, you know, fine, sort of like onion skin, chaff. That that burns, you know, it, with an intensity in seconds, it's gone. And, and what the Lord is saying in regard to this dust that's coming in the, to Israel, to Jerusalem, this multitude of foes that's going to come is, you know, you don't see it right now, but it's going to come upon you so fast that it's going to be like when the chaff is lit afire and just erupts into flame and then it's gone. Now, in a moment, right now, as you think about it, you might be thinking, really? How could that possibly be? God is assuring them, you know, it's going to come, you, know, you might not see it right now, it's going to come so fast and so hard, you're not going to be able to understand how quickly it came upon you and overwhelmed you in this way. So terrible ones like the chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant, suddenly. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquakes and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. The multitude of nations who fight against you, Ariel, even all 
who fight against her and her fortresses and distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. So it's it's a sort of strange, but the Hebrew language puts it out a little better because in verse 5, he's directing all of this towards Jerusalem. In 6, it, it actually transitions over to their enemies. So yes, it's going to come suddenly and you're going to experience this, but now what he's saying from 6 down through 8, he's actually directing that at the enemies, the foes, who are going to be used by God to come against Israel. So follow how this reads. The shift occurs in 6. You, you, the enemies of Israel, will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquakes and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams. And look, he eats, but he awakes, and his soul is still empty. Or when a thirsty man dreams, and look, he drinks and he awakes, and indeed he is faint, and his soul still craves so the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. So, you know, this coming up against them, that's ordained of the Lord. God has, you know, beckoned to them, called them, gathered the enemies of Israel, and brought them to Israel to punish them. But God's intention is that it would act as a corrective discipline for his people. You know, you sort of have to dwell on both sides of that. To really get the understanding because you know what the Lord wants is for them to look much deeper than their feasts as he says in verse 1 much deeper than the year-by-year passing and <clears throat> the heritage of the fact that you know they belong to the descendants of Abraham he wants the relationship to be you know as we know in the New Testament you know the, the circumcised heart you know, the, the the real relationship with the Lord, the traditions, all of those things, they're meaningless as far as knowing God personally. So God sends the enemies to wake them up to where they're really at. They've, they've fallen into a delusion, and he addresses that more uh, throughout the chapter. He, he turns the attention to the enemy, not just for the enemies, <clears throat> because the chances that they read the writings of Isaiah are slim. You know, if any individuals of the nations that came against Israel read it, they didn't translate that to their nations to the degree that they became believers. It's it's more recorded for our sake, for Israel's sake, so that as these things befall Israel, they're not left thinking well, you know, these nations have risen up and destroyed us, conquered us, caused us all these problems. Somehow God has turned his favor away from us, and these things are here to destroy us. And that's that's often what Israel expressed. It's often what we express and feel as believers. We go through the hardships and, you know, we sort of develop the attitude, you know, like Israel did when it was brought out of captivity, like God's brought us out here into the wilderness to kill us. 
He could have done that in Israel or in Egypt if he wanted to. His whole point, his whole purpose was to correct them and bring them to repentance, right? I mean, we watch this nation go through these things, and as they're leaving out of Israel, as they're leaving out of Judah in the south and out of Jerusalem, they're hanging their harps in the trees because they're convinced this sorrow that fills their heart will never sing again. We're so overwhelmed. You know, it's recorded by the prophets that their captors are asking them to sing songs because they're famous for their music. And for Israel, it feels like a taunt. You know, they're saying, sing us a song, sing us a melody, as they're being led off into captivity. And they're just hanging their harps in the trees. And it was the prophet Jeremiah. We've all quoted it, heard it many, many times. Uh, chapter 29, verse 11, the Lord says through the prophet, you know, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, that you might have a future and a hope. You know, when they're being crushed, when they're being disciplined, when they're going through the hardships, they have the mindset, we have the mindset, that God hates me. This is somehow an element of destruction in my life. And God is saying, no, 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 don't listen. Don't listen to your enemies. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't even listen to your own heart, right? It was Jeremiah that told us that also. The heart is you know, deceitful, desperately wicked. You know, who can know it? We don't, we don't want to trust in what our heart says, even about our circumstances. God is telling the nation, I love you, and I'm doing this for your benefit. As they go off into captivity, they're there for 70 years. When they return out of their captivity, they never return to idolatry. Once they come out of captivity and return to Israel, they never go back to idolatry. They have sinful problems that they've got to deal with, and you know they've fallen quite a ways by the time Jesus shows up and has to purify them in the temple and you know a whole lot of things but they never fall back into idolatry that's what they wrestle with all along the way that's currently why the Lord is sending these enemies in so he has to insert in the middle of this message hey make sure you don't think that somehow I've now poured my blessing out upon your enemies you know, they're going to get what's coming to them, too. You know, they've captured Israel thinking, oh, you know, this is going to give us some great wealth, some great satisfaction, some fulfillment. And the Lord describes it like a dream. You know, have you ever done that in a dream? Not Maybe not necessarily like eating or drinking, but you know, I remember waking up one night trying to unlock a door. You know, and I'm sitting up on the edge of my bed and I'm, you know, like almost like I've got a key in my hand. I'm trying to unlock the dresser that's in front of me. You know, I'm j I just got my knuckles on the, the flat wood as though I'm in, you know, a, a door lock. Try, you know, you feel so foolish when you wake up. Like, well, that, that was stupid. That was just a dream. I'm going through all the motions. I've, I've sat up in bed and I'm trying to unlock a door. You know, in, in, in my dream, when that occurred, I had wrestled with the lock for so long that I finally got down on my knees and I'm like looking right in the lock in my dream. And when I wake up, I'm like sitting on the edge of the bed just trying to... I, I, when I woke up, I literally realized I'm squinting. <laughs> you know, it's pitch black in my room as though I can see. And I'm like, I'm going to get this and I'll make this work. You feel stupid. They're going to feel stupid. Mount yourself up. Go ahead. Go against Israel. 
act like you're doing it through your strength that somehow the Lord has blessed you and given you the upper hand over my chosen people. God is saying that's going to disappear like a dream. Remember that. Brothers and sisters, even if you're not going through it, remember it for yourself. Mark it down. Because sometimes it's going to feel like the people around you have gotten the upper hand, that you're being torn apart. Remember that they're going to wake up at some point and realize they're messing with God's kid. And all of that weird satisfaction they've got, it's just going to disappear like a dream. You know, it's going to be like, you know, sitting up on the edge of the bed, you know, with an imaginary fork in your hand, as though you're eating food and you wake up and feel really foolish about the fact that you're sitting there playing some kind of dream game with yourself. God is in control. He's the one who takes care of his children, and he'll make sure that he punishes those who come against the nation. 29.9. Pause and wonder. Very unique statement in all of the Scripture. You know, we have lots of different things throughout the Scripture where the Lord draws attention, and, and sometimes the language loses it, right? Verily, verily. That is, that is a statement that is supposed to cause, it, it definitely caused, you know, the, the Hebrew people uh, who were speaking Greek of the day go, oh, this is, this is something we've got to pay attention to. You know, he said, verily, twice. Verily, verily. Woe unto you. Woe unto you, Babylon. Whoa. Hey, hey, he just said woe twice right in the road. Did anybody catch that? You know, it's a, it's a sort of thing that the, the Hebrew and, and the Greek readers would say that that is very significant to be recorded that way in the midst of, of this, you know, um, account the prophet is giving. Here. Uh, 29 9 pause and wonder it's literally like the psalmist you know we read through and come to that word selah that's not even supposed to be read when you're reading the psalms that that's a musical notation and it's the idea of pause right here in this movement of music don't go any further you know let the music just let the note just hang right there let your mind meditate upon this and think of pause in the midst of reading this. Here, same thing, and it's spelled right out, pause and wonder. So prepare your mind for that. If I move through it too rapidly, maybe you want to make note of that statement in the passage and go home and literally pause and wonder about what follows in verse 9 and 10 particularly. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. What a weird statement. Why would I ever want to blind myself? No, thank you. Well, okay. Maybe I'll put my hands over my eyes or I'll blindfold myself. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep, and closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he who covered their heads, namely the seers. Several things there which are really significant then and now. So again, pause and wonder. So it's got to be significant. He wants us to pay attention. Secondly, Blind and drunk. That's what he declares his people to be. You are blind 
and drunk, yet not from intoxicating drink. So you're experiencing blindness and the effects of drunkenness, but not from anything that would normally render you that way. You, you are spiritually in this condition. They stagger, it says, but not with intoxicating drink. Please, at this point, from your pastor, from your speaker this evening, make note of the fact that this speaks very powerfully to those who promote the idea of God blessing his people with being drunk in the spirit. Those in the church today that promote this idea as though it's something God would lend his people. You know, certain members of Christianity have pushed this idea very strongly and polluted the church with it. It's never God's intention that his people be drunk. Oh, well, Jesus drank wine. Right, but he also forbid drunkenness. Repeatedly throughout the scripture, it is condemned and condemned and condemned and condemned. There's, there's no promotion of drunkenness anywhere in all of the scripture. I, I only know two or three people in all of my life that actually drank alcohol who had absolutely no problem with it whatsoever. And I don't mean that they drank and would tell you. that I'm talking about people who, you know, have a glass of red wine with their meal who didn't care a hoot whether they finished it or not. You know, they liked the taste and they might drink a quarter of it or half of it. And, you know, it would sit right there and get poured out as easily as, you know, a glass of milk that a child had left with the meal. They were unconcerned. You know, for those of us like myself, who had very serious problems with drugs and alcohol, that's just completely out of bounds for me for the rest of my life. Mostly for your sake so that I have clarity of mind, and so that you can follow my example. You know, not that I insist that no Christian drink anything ever at any time, but that when you look at me, you don't have to see alcohol in my life and go, well, to what degree do I go? Right? Because there is an old statement, you know, what the parents do in moderation the children do in excess, right? So, so if it's not part of my life, then I haven't helped stumble anybody. You know, I've I've cleared that off from my palate, as Jesus said. You know, I'll not partake of the wine again until I partake of it in the kingdom. When I'm in the presence of the Lord and whatever He puts in my hand, I'll consume that. Until then, abstinence. That's, that's where I'm at, for my sake and for everyone else's sake. These people are drunk and blind. They stagger, but not from intoxicating drink, because that is what they prefer. God has given them the spirit of deep sleep. Uh, that's an unfortunate thing. Those within the church who desire the drink and even the drunkenness, as a result, spiritually, they've fallen asleep. Don't even recognize it. That's the blindness and the drunkenness that he's talking about. The sleep, 
the deep stupor that they're in. Because they desire these things, God goes, okay, and off they go into those things. It carries all the way to the New Testament, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now uh, is our hour of salvation nearer than when we first believed. This is the day right here. Look, wherever every one of us is when we hear this message, we're moments closer to the finality of all things. It's not time for drunkenness. It's not time to be consumed with the things of the world. It's time to be awake and alert and very focused. That's what the Lord has called us to. That's the goal of my life. Why? Because the prophet who were known as the seers, are gone. That's why they've fallen into this condition. That's, that's why they've fallen into this drunkenness and this blindness and this sleep. Because the prophet and the seer are gone. That's what the, the passage is telling us. If no one's going to listen to them, the prophet and the seer, why would the prophet and the seer want to minister? No one's listening. No one's paying attention. You know? Might as well go do something else. If no one will follow them, why would God send them? If, if they're not going to listen to the prophet or the seer, then, then why would God even send them? It's a, a tragic and unfortunate thing that occurs in societies, especially, I look at America, and I'm just heartbroken. I mean, that's not, you know, that's easy to say. You know, that's kind of like a softball right now, just knock it right out of the park but I, I mean you look around at this nation that so was so embedded in the word of god just everything about this nation i i uh I, we were at pilgrim's plantation years ago and i had uh, you know when when the uh, citizens um of pilgrim's plantation those that play the roles and play the parts uh, when you're there, they're in character. They will not break character. That is, that is a rule of their being employed there. They, they do not break character. You can, you can do some interesting things with them about custom and dress. And, and they, they have learned methods by which to not, I mean, they will talk to you from your present time as though they are in their present time, in their character. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting had an opportunity to talk to uh, two of the actors who were not on duty yet. They, they were coming in and they were, you know, they were carrying their uniforms with them and stuff. And so I got to talk to them about what that job was like. And both of them made comment to the fact that everything they did had to do with the word of God. Because even if they were playing the role of someone who wasn't necessarily, you know, a Christian, the entirety of that culture and everything that they did was focused around the Word of God and the fact that the church stood at the head of their community. It was all focused around that. You know, we talked about the fact that in Jamestown, uh, we had taken the, the seniors uh, to Jamestown, I think two years before that, um, 
the, the law and the mandate before they disembarked from the ship, one of the things they set in order was that if someone refused to come to church on Sunday, that was punishable by death. So when this country was being established, Jamestown being one of the first locations, if you as a citizen of Jamestown refused to come to church, forget you know all of these theatrics you're seeing on the BBC. and If you didn't go to church, they could put you to death. So I asked them if that was the fact, you know, case in uh, you know Pilgrim's Plantation, and they said yes, it was the same law recorded there, but um, it didn't occur. They knew enough of the history that it didn't occur out of rebellion. Everybody was so steeped in the Word of God that where it would occur is if sickness had befallen a family, and like the weather had you know closed in on them, and they were desperate, and and so now. They got the mindset like, I can't go to church. I've got to get in the field. I've got to till. I've got to plow. Then what would happen is the community would come out to them and encourage them about their faith and draw them back into fellowship at the church with the promise of we will rest today on the Lord's day of worship and, and tomorrow all of us together will help you go plow and till. That's a long ways from where we are today. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, you try to even measure the distance from that to where we are today. The people understood, literally understood the word of God themselves. You could take a commoner from amongst their citizens and ask him to teach here today and from the word of God, and it would blow our minds with their level of understanding. Today, our culture is illiterate, and, and here the prophet's going to address that in just a moment. The people don't know. Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12 speak of this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to uh, to east, and they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. I see, you know, I do jail ministry every Wednesday, and I see this famine firsthand. It's it's a lot, you know, when we went to um, Auschwitz, and you see all of those pictures of the people who are emaciated, and about to die from lack of food. When they came in, a healthy, robust male who came from the working force straight into Auschwitz, he had three months. In three months, he would be dead from starvation. They had a very systematic way of moving them incrementally down through the heavy labor. They immediately began starving. Because to feed them was to lose money. So starve them. And, and, and their abilities to function immediately begin to deteriorate. And in two weeks, you move them from that top-tier labor down into the next level. Down into the next level. Down into the next level. Until they're useless. And then you just execute them. That was their method. You guys, in the jail, I'm looking at people who are about to be put to death by their enemy and they don't even know it. They're, they're literally on death's door, most of them. I talked to a guy last night. He was uh, 
29 years old, he's spent 15 years of his life in jail. Imagine that. It's unthinkable. He's, he's shaking as he tells me that he's petrified to get out of jail. He's hoping, he's praying that he and I will be able to spend more time together so that the changes I'm talking about will occur in his life so that when he's released, he will not just automatically turn right around and end up back in that place. Our culture is starving to death all around us. There is a famine in our land. You know, the fact that we're involved as a church with the jail ministries that we are and putting people into the residential discipleship programs that we are is going to make us a target of that enemy who's trying to wipe them out. He's going to attack you j just for being here and being in this Bible study. You know, support this ministry. He's going to attack you on a whole new level. Get involved. He's going to tear at you on a whole new level. It's, it's no joke, man. This famine is alive and well, unfortunately, in our world today. Verse 11 of chapter 29, it says, The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is literate uh, and saying, please re uh, read this, please. He says, I am not literate. They can read. That's not what's being said. It's, you know, hopefully the illustration's fairly thin. Uh, they are illiterate to God's word. They don't understand it. You know, you read it to them and they have no grasp of it whatsoever. It, it's beyond them. It's interesting to me as I was praying over this. I think the Holy Spirit led me to recall this. There's a man blinded at a very young age. He was an American evangelist, gospel blues singer, and guitarist known as Blind Willie Johnson. He wrote a song. He actually wrote many, many songs, and they're all available for download now. The song is called It's Nobody's Fault But Mine. Recorded that in 1927. You may remember the version done by Led Zeppelin in 1975. Nobody's fault but mine. Here are the lyrics. And, and this is interesting to me. That a band like Led Zeppelin sang these songs. L listen to these lyrics. Nobody's fault but mine. Nobody's fault but mine. If I don't read, uh, excuse me, if I don't read it, my soul be lost. I have a Bible in my home. I have a Bible in my home. If I don't read it, my soul be lost. Father, he taught me how to read. Father, he taught me how to read. If I don't read it, my soul be lost. Nobody's fault but mine. Oh, Lord, Lord, nobody's fault but mine. If I don't read it, my soul be lost. Oh, I have a Bible of my own. I have a Bible of my own. If I don't read it, my soul be lost. Oh, mother, she taught me how to read. Mother, she taught me how to read. If I don't read it, my soul be lost. Nobody's fault but mine. Oh, Lord, Lord, nobody's fault but mine. If I don't read it, my soul be lost. 
And sister, she taught me how to read it. Sister, she taught me how to read. If I don't read, my soul be lost. Nobody's fault but mine. Lord, nobody's fault but mine. If I don't read it, my soul be lost. Quite an amazing thing. Think about this. A man who was blind, ministering to this nation, saying what you need to see is the word of God. What's needed in all of your lives. It's an amazing thing that our culture, again, that was so founded in the Word of God, has come to the place that it is today. My wife has made comment about her grandparents and how none of them really followed the Lord. And yet, they had all of these Christian principles that they lived by. And she's gone through all of these very specific things that they live by. And that is because her great-grandparents were devout Christians. And they had raised their children in all of those biblical principles. The children kept the principles but abandoned the Word of God. So that by the time her father came along and her mother came along, they're in the process of even abandoning the principles. You depart from the Word of God, and inevitably this is the track you end up on. This is where we will reside. 29.13, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by commandment of men. Now, if this is sounding very familiar to you, We're going to hit the New Testament references where even Jesus himself repeatedly is pointing back to these words of Isaiah. He's rebuking the religious leaders about the fact that they are holding to the traditions and the commandments of men rather than the word of God. They hold on to the traditions and this is what's brought them to the place where their Messiah is standing right in front of them and they're willing to kill him over the traditions that they've created, having abandoned the word of God. So look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, Who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? They're going to, you know, hold up the earthen vessel that has been made by the potter and say, you know, this earthen vessel is more dignified and more intelligent, wiser than the one who made it. It's, It's absurd when you put it in that perspective and yet our whole culture is of that mindset we're we're wiser than the god who made us i've said it to you many times uh, there was that occasion where chuck smith was actually asked to do a radio interview where there was a critic of the gospel and the dj who was from the radio station and chuck and The critic and Chuck had called in, and now they're going to have this three-part interview. And as they're moving through it all at once, the opposition 
says, well, you know, today we reject all of that that you're saying because we know better than Jesus did. And Chuck just hung the phone up. And a few moments later, the radio announcer called him and said, oh, we must have gotten you know, cut off. Very sorry about that. I'll get you right back on. And so Chuck said, don't bother. I hung up. And the guy was all offended. You know, why? Why would you hang up? He said, there's no way I'm going to interview with somebody that thinks they're wiser than God. I mean, how, how can you debate that person? You know, can the clay say to the one who formed it, you know, I'm superior to you? This is exactly what the prophet is questioning. You know, this, this is not something that can be done. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Is there an equal value for Shall the thing made say to him who made it, He did not make me, or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. <laughs> We're smarter than Jesus. Uh, no, you're not. You're not smarter than God. New Testament, Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, brood of vipers. How can you say, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. People will reveal to you what they actually believe and what they actually think by what they say. What comes out of their mouth. If, if, if we will slow down and listen to what people are saying, we'll discover what they actually believe. They will confess to us. They will expose to us what they actually believe. Many people say, you know, I believe the Word of God. I believe the Bible. You know, where I run into this all the time is with people that want to say, oh, I don't have an addiction. I have an illness. I don't have alcoholism. You know, I, I, or, or I don't, you know, it's not a sin. This is an illness that I have. Listen, the Word of God renounces that and says that what we're struggling with when we have that type of thing in our life is not an addiction to pornography. It's sin. It's sin. It's a choice. That we're making now I, I'll give it to you you know maybe that choice started farther back than maybe you can even remember and now it's completely ingrained in your person and it feels more natural to you than you know living without it that doesn't make it natural right or good God calls it sin and the choice is the thing that's going to get rid of it they'll reveal to you whether they believe the word of God or not they, if they hold to the opinions of our culture, if they hold to the opinions of men more highly than the word of God, then you know where they're at. They're in rejection of his word. Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 7, he also said, hypocrites. Well did Isaiah the, uh, prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's clarifying the very passage that we're in. He's giving commentary on it. You know, he's saying they're teaching you know, the commandments of men as though they were doctrine. And, and that, that is honestly a, just an absolute plague within the church. Christianity is just tortured and tormented with that. That people believe things and and you know you've heard me describe it it's not just in the big things even in the little things when people think that 
you know, certain traditions and even holidays and things that we celebrate and have, you know, are from the word of God when they discover that they're not because they've been taught as though it's equal to Christianity, equal to our faith. Well, now I got to throw that out once they discover, oh, this is just a tradition that men have created. So now they got to throw that out. And now in their mind, none of the word of God is trustworthy. You know, Santa Claus is not real. Wait a second. You know, if, if he's not real, then maybe Jesus isn't real. You know, so many characteristics of Santa are, you know, characteristics that only belong to Jesus. So if, if Santa isn't real, Jesus must not be real. This is from, from childhood. And I was very careful about it. I always taught my children, Santa Claus is not real. You know, and people want to say, well, you know, St. Nicholas and he, no, we're not even doing any of that. This is a tradition that emerged from Babylon that skipped over the Hebrew nation, followed its own vein through Rome, and then Constantine lands in the middle of Christianity in 350 AD and institutes all of these belief systems. You know, that's that's the worship of Semiramis that you're talking about. Uh, you know, we put up the Christmas tree and had the celebration, but the clarity of mind in my family and my children, and they weren't the ones that went around, you know, and freaked other kids out with, you know, hey, Santa Claus is not real. You know, they, they didn't blow up people's holidays. But when the opportunity came, oh, man, my oldest daughter, Christian, was just five years old. We were at, you know, friend's house, and they we didn't know it. They'd made all these arrangements to have a fake Santa Claus come into the house, a man in a suit, and do a big presentation. And I thought, oh, man, my precocious Christian, how is she going to handle this? And she was polite. She went through all the roles and squealed and hollered and had a blast and accepted gifts and, you know, hugs and kisses. And he went out the door and she turned around to the family and said, now, who was that? And they were like, well, Santa Claus. And she's like, yeah, I know that was Santa. But who was it that was in the costume playing Santa? And that family lost their mind. We were so evil. They could not believe how terrible we had treated our daughter. And I went right into that sermon with them and said, you guys are setting yourself up, your family and your kids, and right now you're angry with me because I didn't set up my daughter. She's never going to come to that place where she says, oh, Santa's not real, maybe Jesus isn't real. Easter Bunny's not real, maybe Tooth Fairy. None of that, they didn't have to deal with any of that. That's all mythological stupidity that people do. Fine, let's go have fun with it, you know. Oh, lots of Easter candy is great, you know. Just wind your kid right into a chocolate-covered sugar frenzy and think. Fine, whatever. But no bunny hopping around doing nothing in their life. Important, very, very important that people don't take the traditions of religion and culture and destroy the Word of God with it. It's a subtle thing for some people. They don't recognize it hear what jesus is saying again matthew 15 verse 7 hypocrites well did isaiah prophesy about you saying these people draw near to me with their lips or in their mouth and honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me in vain they worship me teaching as doctrine the commandments the traditions of men 
We want to be very careful about that. Later in Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 6, he answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? See how polite and kind and politically correct Jesus is. Well, did the prophet say of you hypocrites? That's not going to win friends and influence people. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. What people say is going to actually show you what they believe. You'll need to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll look at verse 21. We'll come back to Isaiah real quick, but I just want to read these verses together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Just pause right there for a moment and let me refresh your mind with this thought, right? You're going to worship Jesus Christ or you're going to worship the intellect or pleasure, or money and power. That's it. That's your choices. And people don't even realize it. So very often, we think that the person who's going to sit down when we're doing a Bible study or sharing with somebody and ask a lot of questions, we think, oh, I'm just so glad they're asking a lot of questions. And look, I don't mind questions. You know, I'm not in a place where, like, don't question me. That's not my mindset at all. I don't mind the questions, but what I've found more often than anything about the people who ask a lot of questions is they worship the intellect. And in the end, if you can win them over with argument, somebody else can win them away with another argument. It's very important to get them to realize, oh, no, 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 no. We worship God in spirit and in truth. In spirit. There is that which is spiritual. It's not about having the perfect argument. You know, being ready always to give a defense for our faith, very significant. Need to be good apologists about our faith, but... How do people come to faith? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. His Holy Spirit working. What did Jesus say? You're not even going to see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. It's going to be the Spirit working in their heart. I think that's a big problem in the church today is there's a whole bunch of the church that's engaged in trying to convince people. The revivals that have occurred historically had nothing to do, nothing to do with apologetics. Hear me in that. Check me on it. Fact check the issue. You say, oh, no, I looked and right here, you know, Azusa Street revivals. Look at the apologetics meetings that began. Yeah, absolutely. After the revival. Then people were like, teach us. Teach us the word of God. Show us what... The Spirit moved on their heart, and they were compelled into the kingdom. We need to pray that there'd be revival, that there'd be awakening in our community, and we need to be ready as the prophets and the seers to be there and deliver the truth of God's word to them. 
But the thing that's going to draw people to God is His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit. Not how clever we are, not how cool our churches are, none of those things. It's going to be the Lord who performs this work. So, you know, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. You got to, okay, do a miracle. If there was a miracle, then I'd believe, right? That's that's the way the spiritual, quote-unquote, or the religious people approach. Okay, you're the next big thing on, you know, Christianity's market. Then do the miracle, and then we'll believe. No miracles here? Oh, well, we'll move on. Then the other group says, oh, well, you've got to, you know, convince us. You, you, you've got to, you know, win us over with your wisdom. And what have we got to offer them? You. Have you looked in the mirror? I mean, the Lord is reaching way down the totem pole. You know what I'm saying? To get to us. Why? Because he's taken this foolish vessel and stood it up in front of everybody and said, look what I've done right there. That's the miracle. Your life changed. That's the miracle. That's the wisdom. This person was on their way to hell and I've delivered them from it. That's his message. We are his declaration. The world that's not ready to accept, they look on and go, foolishness. Listen, let them call you fool endlessly. The one that looks on you and says, that's what I need. That's what you were intended for. Right? How many times did Jesus say, oh, this message, it's not for you guys. It's for him who has ears to hear. It's, it's for none of you. It's for you. The one person. The one you're going to reach. Jesus thinned the crowd. Send the people away, right? They're there for free lunch. What does he say? You want to follow me today? I know I fed you yesterday, but if you're going to follow me today, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the whole crowd goes, this is sick. And he says, see you later. You know, the disciples are going, that's a very hard thing you just said. And he's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> now, can we get, are you going to leave too? Right? He puts the charge right to them. You know, they, they have the mindset that we do in the seeker-friendly church. Oh, my goodness. I just read that out loud, and that was so harsh. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Jesus says to our heart, oh, so do you want to leave too? If not, you might want to just embrace what you just read right there and then let's get going. Move on. This is the message of our kingdom, the foolishness. We preached Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. To the ones that wanted a miracle. Jesus crucified, we were looking for a miracle. Your Messiah just got killed. And boom, they fall on their face, stumble over that block. To the Greeks who are all educated and wise, they're like, wait a minute, so this isn't about some bit of intelligence? You're, so your Messiah was crucified, tortured? The, the creator of the known universe allowed himself to be killed? That doesn't make any sense. That's, that's the approach they take. Nothing's changed, you guys. Our message hasn't changed. Our culture hasn't changed. Don't, don't listen to the people that are like, oh man, if we're going to reach Generation Z, we're going to have to just recreate the church. No, we're not. That's what our enemy wants us to do. 
is expend every ounce of energy we've got on retooling a message that isn't supposed to be touched by our hands. Preach the gospel. Do the same thing you were doing yesterday with your faith. You know, I'm assuming it's the right thing. <laughs> Preach the gospel. Preach Jesus. If they stumble over it, if they reject it, that's not your problem. Right? We, we, we get the mindset, you guys. I am going to finish this chapter tonight, so trust me. We get the mindset that our job is to go out and change the condition of all of the different soils in the parable of the sower. And that's just not it at all. Right? The problem is all these hard pathways, all these hard hearts. We need to become Christian rototillers. You know, tear up these hearts so they'll be ready for the gospel. No. No. Our job is to fling the seed. Just scatter the seed. Just just throw. Just sow. Just sow the seed. Just throw it out there. If it ricochets right off some people, right? That's not our problem. If you have not experienced it yet, you cannot change a human being. It doesn't ever happen. No. If you think you can, probably you've never been married. That's what that's where we're all supposed to say that right there. Can't change another human being. God can. God can change every one of us. And then, right? Somebody that you threw the seed at years ago that sprang right up and then died right off will suddenly take root and become just the most magnificent product, plant, growth, yielding to the Lord. You know, small percentages are big percentages, but yielding to the Lord, productive and fruitful. Let the Lord work. Don't worry about these things. The Greeks foolish are those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So beautiful a picture. For time's sake, we'll jump right back to Isaiah 29, verse 17. Yet it is not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest. Again, pointing, so Isaiah takes us to the depths of the current circumstances, and then he points us way out to the coming day of the Messiah and the millennial kingdom and all that God is going to do. You know, and, and he kind of showers you know, a, a, a glimpse and a view of everything that lies between the darkness and, and the glorious coming of the Messiah. So as we read this, you know, it's just a little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest. And that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, spiritually and physically. The eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness, right? Jesus was giving hearing and giving, uh, you know, speech and sight to everyone who had been deaf, dumb, and blind. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, Poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. 
for the terrible one is brought to nothing. And that's a broad picture, right? The enemies that attacked Israel, you know, as we read in previous chapters, Leviathan, the dragon, the devil himself, you know, the terrible ones, or here, singular, the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are caught off. You make a man an offender by a word and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. Turn aside the just to empty words. So all of those people and all of those things that corrupted what was good, right? I mean, I was blessed. I, Franklin Graham today saying in the national news, you know, as he's embarking on a nationwide tour of delivering the gospel today saying in the news just outright that homosexuality is a sin to be repented of. That's amazing. In our culture, in this day, to have somebody not try to pad that statement at all, to just let it come out of their mouth in the raw. I mean, that's the sort of thing, you say, oh, you do that, and they're going to just say you're the most wicked person our culture's ever seen. You can guarantee the backlash is coming. You know, that was late this afternoon. They haven't even had time to react. You watch tomorrow, the media mill will be just vomiting out all kinds of accusations about him for saying that. You know, as he prepares to call this nation to repent and come to the Lord. He's going to be in uh, southern Maine. So, uh, you know, we might get an opportunity to join others and go down there and experience the uh, work and the blessing of the Lord. 29, 22, Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed. Significant, right, in, in two points. One, speaking of that future and the glory of Israel and all that God is going to do to take us from where we are through all of those changes to the point where his kingdom is set up on earth. But particularly, he calls him Jacob, not Israel. Right? So the heel catcher, the one who caused people to stumble, the one who would be known as the trickster or the scoundrel, he calls him Jacob by his shamed name and yet says, you'll not be ashamed. So for all of our guilt, as we sit here and think across our past and what we've done and what we've been, know and understand that we're going to be in the presence of the Lord someday and all of that will just be erased. There'll be no thought back to those shameful things. The Lord is going to glorify himself and glorify us in the process. It'll be a wonderful thing to experience. Nor shall his face now grow pale. You know, you know the blood draining out of his face of embarrassment or, or worry. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob. And the, the fear of and fear the God of Israel. These also, erred in spirit, will come to understand. Those who complained will learn doctrine. Uh, great expression there. I am uh, praying about that and all that needs to change in the individual. It's, it's an easy verse for me. I've brought it to us many times. Everybody's got a life verse usually. Philippians 1.6 for me. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
is a, you know the expression of continual working, but also the finishing. The Lord is going to finish His work in the Lord is going to finish His work in you. You know, you you may be you know we were talking with a couple of guys the other day and someone we've been you know helping and discipling for years. And one of the guys started expressing frustration. I said, wait, wait, wait. You're looking at the current situation. We need to look at where we began. <laughs> and everybody just thought for a moment about what those early days were like in helping this individual. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, amen. <laughs> you can't measure yourself by where you currently are, right? We have struggles. We have up and downs. Until we're not in this flesh, we're going to have to contend with this flesh. You got to look at where you've started, right? The old photographs will tell a story, will they not? Dig some of those out and look at your long hair and your stupidity or whatever it was. Maybe it was short hair, maybe you've grown it. I don't know. Just the changes that have occurred and the way things will remind you the Lord is at work in each one of our lives. And it's a great blessing. There's a coming day where it will all be fulfilled. And that's what the prophet is pointing us to. If we can recognize the work that has occurred in us while we simultaneously look at our wretched state, when you look at the world and recognize the wretched state, remember that God has been at work the whole time also. Where did we begin with this whole thing, right? We are moving closer and closer to the fulfillment of these six every passing day. Let the Lord fulfill them and rejoice along the way. Amen? Well, we'll pick up with 30 next week. Why don't we stand up and pray? Father God, we thank you so much again for this place and ability to be together and study and worship. I pray, Lord, that these things would stick in our hearts, that we would take the time, even as the passage said tonight, to pause and wonder, to really review what we've read here, what we've studied, the notes we've taken, that we would meditate upon this passage, that it would give us the nourishment we need, that we would grow and change as a result of it. Accomplish your work in us. Bring us to that completion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.